Mormon describes the decline of his people with an emphasis on heavenly versus earthly gifts and the concept of vengeance versus redemption. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Thank you for joining me again for Gospel Doctrine, your Come Follow Me podcast, and uh, I'm glad to be with you again today. Today's lesson is Mormon chapter one, chapters one through six. I would that I could persuade all to repent, and I have a question from Grace in Telluride. Grace asks, uh, in Fourth Nephi one three, the description is made of the Nephites that they were all partakers of the heavenly gift. What is this heavenly gift, and how can we receive it today? Thank you for that wonderful question, Grace. Uh, listen, the, the heavenly gift is an interesting idea because if you read the Book of Mormon from the time of the visit of Christ to the Nephites to the end, you find a lot of discussion on gifts of the Spirit. And Christ talks about all the gifts that people can receive. Uh, Mormon and Moroni are constantly talking about the fact that if you believe that miracles are done away with, then you have not understood the nature of God, the unchanging nature of God. So there are a lot of different, uh, gifts is used for a lot of different ideas. But particularly here, it seems like when it says the heavenly gift, it seems like they're talking about something very specific. And I just want to give you my interpretation on what the heavenly gift is. I, I meant to get to this last time, but it's one of those things that I forgot uh, in the in the heat of the moment. Even though I'm, it's just me alone here with a microphone, sometimes I do get nervous because I'm, I'm sort of on the spot. So anyway, uh, the heavenly gift is an important concept, and I'm actually glad I forgot because it this uh, this it enlightens or it illuminates the topics that we'll talk about today, and so I'm glad we'll be talking about it at the beginning of the lesson. First of all, you may have heard the saying, and I, I had an old bishop who told me this. It says, "When God wants to pay you, He pays you in relationships." I don't know if you've ever heard that before. But obviously, uh, Jesus promised the disciples, if you, if, before you seek for riches, seek for the kingdom of God. And later on, he also promised that if you later seek for these things, you will find them. But you'll do it for the purpose of helping out, the, of working out God's purposes, of helping out the poor, etc. Of healing the sick, of setting at liberation the captive. So, Someone who has God's purposes in mind, someone who has a hope in Christ, will use earthly blessings for a different purpose than will someone who does not. So the heavenly gift in this case, this is God's gift to the person, is not the wealth that they've received, but the purpose that they now have for which they will use all of their resources, their time, their energy, and their wealth. Uh, that's one little, I think that that scripture is one little indication on what the heavenly gift is is that when uh, you think wealth is the gift, but God won't give you that gift until you have a hope in Christ. So that's the first indication of part of the gift. You have the hope in Christ. And then then you will use, if you, if you receive earthly blessings, if you receive wealth, etc. From that point on, you'll use those resources in a different way. And you'll use them for other people in a way that gains you something. And what you gain, what you buy, uh, you might say, with, with those blessings from God, that's your gift. And the purposes you have for using them in that way, that's your gift. That's one interpretation. Uh, in the Doctrine and Covenants, it says when we die, we, we will be able to take whatever level of intelligence we attain in this life with us into the next life. And, you know, when I was a younger man, I think it was in Priest Quorum, I remember reading this scripture. And having always been done well in school, I felt like this was a vindication spiritually that because I was a smart kid, that God would somehow favor me spiritually. And uh, with, with some years that have passed in between that day and this, I now realize that the, the learning about earthly or, uh, let's say, scientific topics or mundane topics is not what uh, that scripture is talking about. So I honestly believe this. This is my interpretation. This is not scriptural, but I, I do really believe that this is true. Uh, knowing more about math, knowing more about science, those things don't do us any good after we die. 
not because we don't need to know them, but because once the veil is taken from our minds, it's actually, I believe it's actually going to be quite trivial to learn about concept-heavy topics like, like mathematics, for example, or even, you know, something complicated, but it's based on English. I'm not saying you have to be left-brained or right-brained to, to learn something that is mundane. What I mean is these, these topics that might be hard for us to grasp here on earth, and some people are better at them than others, that is not a mark of God's favor. Because once, we're, once we leave this life, the veil is taken from our minds. Our minds will work perfectly, and we'll be able to pick up things that are knowledge-based so quickly. That being the case, what does that scripture mean? The level of intelligence that we reach in this life will rise with us into the next life. We'll be able to take that with us. What kind of intelligence can we gain if not worldly learning, scientific learning, etc.? And my own personal interpretation of that verse is that when I learn things about myself, when I learn, for example, how to resist my own defensive mindset, when God chastens me and corrects me, and I learn humility, I learn to receive that correction. I learn that in my relationships with others, for example, if my wife were to come to me and say, uh, I need you to understand that you hurt me when you said this, and rather than reacting, well, you said this, I, I, say, to my, I say to my wife, oh my gosh, uh, sweetheart, I can't believe I did that. Tell me more about how you feel. Help me understand how I made a mistake and uh, let me know about how this affected you so that I can do better in the future. That's, that kind of wisdom, if I can learn it and humble myself, and if, if I can learn to resist my own victim mindset, in which I believe that the world is out to get me, or that uh, I should take things perfect, uh, sorry, not perfectly, personally. I, sh I should take offense when there's no offense intended. If I can get around that victim victimhood mindset that follows people and keeps them from seeking out Heavenly Father, keeps them from being humble, makes them feel entitled. If I can resist all of these impulses, then that's the kind of wisdom that I will be taking with me. So I've given you a couple of indications. Number one, you have a hope in Christ. That's a gift from God. That's a heavenly gift. Number two, you have relationships that are deep, that become deeper and more fulfilling uh, as, you, as you begin to serve each other and, and humble yourselves as you deal with each other. So that, that connection that exists between people can be deepened. You don't have as many misunderstandings when you communicate. You're able to be more clear because you're able to listen when you're not taking offense. And I think the final part of this heavenly gift is when we do all those things, it actually changes our nature. You remember that uh, the, the Nephites in 4th Nephi, they had all things in common. They were very industrious. They were building cities, and yet there were no poor among them. So they were working hard, and yet they weren't keeping all of the proceeds of their own labor. They were sharing them. So they had, they had changed somehow because we don't, we, if we look around us in the world today, we don't see any examples of this or very few. Uh, there are people who live on, uh, in communes that are, that are very small. This works with sort of like an extended family. But once the group gets uh, any, any bit larger than that, uh, of any appreciable size, then this kind of communal living cannot function. It's, been, it's failed so many times. And the early saints, as I mentioned last week, they tried also to live this way, and they couldn't do it because people want to own the proceeds of their own labor. And if they see somebody else acting selfishly, they can't continue to act unselfishly themselves. And so they had a changed nature. They were able to forgive others their selfishness while continuing to be unselfish. So I'm going to review those. What is the heavenly gift? It is a hope in Christ. It is the kind of wisdom to resist our own, the demons of our own nature, our own entitlement, our own victimhood mentality. It is connection and relationships with others, and it is a changed nature in which we're willing to share with each other. That is the heavenly gift. And if you have that gift, you can kind of see how all of these things are related, so it's almost like it's a single gift. If you have that gift, if you're in a society that has that gift, you're already living in heaven, and that's why it's called the heavenly gift. 
the these Nephites in fourth Nephi, they were already living a heavenly lifestyle. So when they died and they went to paradise or they, you know, were were exalted or whatever, they the the change was not as great between their earthly life and their heavenly life because they were partakers of the heavenly gift. They had brought heaven to earth. And this is uh, perhaps a more perfected state of this, but this exact kind of society taken to its extreme is what Enoch founded in the city of Zion, which was so pure that it had to be taken into heaven itself. So people on earth, when they are partakers of the heavenly gift, they basically decided that they're going to live a heavenly lifestyle. They're not going to misunderstand each other. They're going to deepen their connections instead. And this kind of society cannot be kept from heaven in the same way that the brother of Jared had so much faith that he could not be kept outside of the veil. That's my interpretation of 4th Nephi chapter 1 verse 3. Thank you for your question, Grace. If you'd like to send a question to Gospel Doctrine, email me at gt at gospeltoctrine.com. I'd love to hear from you. All right, let's jump into Mormon chapters 1 through 6. And I'll start this with a question. Why is it important for us to study the life of Mormon? Uh, And I'm not going to keep you in suspense. The answer is because understanding Mormon, his context, his life, it helps us to have perspective over every choice he made as he abridged the entire record that became the Book of Mormon. So it's not like we can go to the middle of Alma and not need to understand Mormon. We can profit from an understanding of Mormon. And I'll give you an example. Why did Mormon name his son Moroni? You remember that that famous verse about Captain Moroni, if all men could be and ever were like unto Moroni, the powers of hell would be shaken forever. So Moroni is this towering, not only military figure, but spiritual figure. And Mormon knew enough about Moroni. He had studied enough by the time he named his son. So at a young age, we can guess that Moroni was born uh, first of all, Mormon will, as we'll learn, he he matured at a young age. We can guess that Moroni was born when Mormon was still relatively young, but already he had read enough of the history of his people that he knew about Captain Moroni and what a powerful figure he was, and he knew that Moroni had been victorious, where he could look around him and see that his own people did not have the righteousness to be victorious. So Moroni had been able to inspire obedience among his people. When there were dissensions, he had stamped them out. And he had been that kind of he had been that powerful of a leader that he was able to inspire people to be not only to win in battle, but to be obedient to the commandments of God. And because he did that, his people his people were ultimately victorious. Whereas Mormon, he he probably knew uh, from a spiritual level, but also he could look around and on a human level he could see the signs of defeat and he could, he could taste the failure every time he tried to preach repentance to the Nephites. Uh, I'm sure this was a bitter personal failure. He saw it as a failure of his own preaching. Uh, I shouldn't say I'm sure. I imagine that uh, he, he saw it as a failure of his own preaching that he wasn't able to get the same kind of results that Captain Moroni from Nephite history did. And I imagine that's why he extended that name to his own son and the hope that Somehow, there might be hope for the, for the Nephites to pull themselves out of this if they could only find an inspiring enough leader and bring themselves to repentance. So, understanding Moroni gives us all of these perspectives over the rest of what's written in the Book of Mormon. And if we can taste the despair with which he lived out the latter part of his life, then we can read the, this plaintive call from, as he says, a voice calling you from the dust to just repent. And we're going to talk about kind of what we're repenting of as, as he gets deeper into his story about what happens to the Nephites. Uh, interestingly enough, in chapter 1, he's taught by his father. So you see that, uh, first of all, when he's 10 years old, you know, one of, these, one of the descendants of Nephi, the, uh, the last disciple, or I should say the leading disciple of Jesus Christ, and he might even have been the third in a line of Nephi's. So there was a Nephi, this, this great prophet Nephi, who left uh, the land of Nephi around the time of the birth of Christ. And then there was the Nephi, his son, who was the leader of the disciples around the time 
when Christ came and preached to the Nephites. And then there may have been another Nephi, his son, who uh, continued to lead the disciples after uh, the death of his father. Whether or not that's the case, uh, there were there were some Nephi's keeping these records, and then there was a man named Amaron, and then he didn't have a direct descendant to whom he could entrust this record. And it may be a sign of the amount of desperation that he had to find a righteous record keeper that he found this sober 10-year-old. And I'm sure he had some inspiration involved, but also he had to be pretty desperate. He couldn't give it to anyone who was old enough to actually keep the record. He had to find a 10-year-old and say, 14 years from now, when you're 24, I want you to go to this particular hill and pull out the records. Now think about all the 10-year-olds that you know. How many of them could you give a charge like that to and say, 14 years from now, I want to give you a task to do that is so important that it's, it basically has consumed the lives of prophets for almost a thousand years. And it is a big part of the reason why God led our people away from the land of Israel here to this continent. And I'm going to entrust it all to you, 10-year-old Mormon and I want you to forget about it now for 14 years, and then I want you to remember, and without fail, you have to go do this thing. That is quite a lot of trust. So Mormon must have been a very, very exceptional young man. Uh, his father took him on a tour. You remember the two, the, the land southward, the two divisions of Nephite land, the land southward and the land northward. Zarahemla, their capital, was always part of this land southward, and therefore it was... Uh, a, you might call it a combat zone or a contested land. And when the Nephites had to retreat from time to time, they were driven through this uh, narrow neck of land, the land bountiful up into the land northward. And that was much more defensible because they had the narrow neck of land separating the two. So the Nephites still have this contested area. As Nephite society, as the centuries pass, the decades and centuries pass, and Nephite society begins to decline, uh, the Lamanites, once again, are belligerent towards the Nephites, and this southern land is contested. And so young Mormon goes on a, on a tour with his father, who is also named Mormon. Mormon, in uh, chapter 1, verse 5, he describes himself as a descendant of Nephi. Now, this doesn't mean, uh, as you read this sort of the first time, your first impression might be, why is he saying that? I bet you everybody at this time. But a thousand years later, everybody's a descendant of Nephi. What does that even mean? Uh, for him to use it in this way, it means, I, I, I can only believe that it means something similar to what it would mean if we read it in the Bible. What he means is he's a direct descendant. He's a, uh, along the male line. In other words, he's the heir. He's the royal heir of Nephi. So Nephi was named and his descendants were named as kings until the flight of the first king, Mosiah, you may remember. And uh, even though the line of Nephi did not hold the kingship after that, I imagine it was considered uh, a prestigious bloodline from then on, all throughout Nephite history. And, and that belief is given credence by the fact that Mormon makes special mention of it. And, and it, I think it can help us understand why at 15 years of age, he would have been given command of the armies. Number one, just like uh, Nephi, son of Lehi, he would have been taught in all the wisdom of, of his father. So think about all of the innovations in military tactics and military strategy that Captain Moroni came up with. He had to have written those down somewhere. And there were many military geniuses that followed. And I'm sure that they had a lot of wisdom to impart, uh, not of a spiritual nature, but of a military nature. So who would be taught those kind of things but the heirs to the, to the line of Nephi? So Mormon, the father of Mormon, I imagine was a very responsible man taking his son down and showing him this is a contested zone. You and I, son, have to prepare to defend the people of Nephi against this threat. We can see it coming. And so I'm going to give you uh, what would amount today to a college education in military history starting when you're 10 years old. And so that by the time you're 15, you can be versed in what to do, how to lead people. I'm going to start putting you in command of, uh, of working men, of, of soldiers, 
starting at 10, 11, 12 years, 12 years old, and you're going to have people reporting to you, and you're going to have to make decisions, and you're going to have to put people in danger. I imagine that this is the only way I can imagine this happening. Mormon had to have experience with all of these things, and it had to be due to choices that his father made. Uh, I can't, it, it's not 100% that it has to be that way, but I can't imagine any other way that this would have taken place. So that gives a little bit of background to what's going on in Mormon chapter 1. Mormon is being prepared at a young age to not only take over the records as we know he did and abridge them, but also he's not just a learned historian, but he's also a powerful military leader because by, by dint of his birthright, he's given this birthright to be a powerful leader and a powerful thought leader, both. And we can see the, uh, the, the evidence of that in chapter 1. In verse 14, he describes his people, their gifts have been taken away. And this is why I'm glad that we talked about what is the heavenly gift from 4th Nephi. Because all of the heavenly gift, there are several parts to that heavenly gift that I described. And if you can imagine a society in which one by one, the, the parts of that gift are taken away. The wisdom that we take with us, uh, the wisdom to avoid this feeling of entitlement, to, to avoid getting defensive, to, to avoid feeling like um, events are victimizing me and the ability to communicate without uh, being misunderstood, willfully misunderstood, uh, having a changed nature by Christ, having a hope in Christ, one by one, those, those gifts like little lights dim and then go out among the people of Nephi. And Mormon, because he still has those gifts, he can look around and see it happening. Now in chapter two, we can see that Mormon enjoys an early military victory, uh, and he's He's outnumbered by a force of 44,000 Lamanites to his 42. So it's a slight outnumbering, which means that it doesn't mean that uh, he was on the level of Captain Moroni, for example. It doesn't mean he wasn't, but this isn't the kind of victory that he had to describe all his tactics to us. But it does show that, number one, he has courage, and number two, he's resourceful enough to lead his people. And though he's outnumbered, he can be victorious. And I think up until this point, the Nephites have been a little bit frightened. You see that they flee battles. They're willing to cede territory rather than engage the Lamanites head on because they know each time they meet, they're going to be outnumbered. And finally, Mormon proves himself as a commander that even though outnumbered, he's able to give the Nephites victory. Uh, this happens a few more times in his life, but it's actually rare for the Nephites to win during the life of Mormon. In spite of the fact that he is a prophet of God, and he's led by the Spirit, he's not able to lead them to victory as often as they go to battle uh, for, for spiritual reasons, for reasons that are obvious to us having read the entire record of the Book of Mormon. We understand why they keep losing. And Mormon, in spite of being a great leader, is forced to trade victories and defeats with the Lamanites. Well, one of his victories happens in chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. With a force of 30,000, he's able to defeat the Lamanites 50,000. And what happens then is sort of remarkable. The Lamanites don't come to battle for 10 years. So in between the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, we have this 10-year gap. And Mormon is actually 40 years old at the end of chapter 2 and 50 years old at the beginning of chapter 3. So uh, number one, we know a couple of things because he's mentioned them. Uh, he's mentioned the large plates of Nephi. In, in chapter 2, verse 18, he says, I've, I've kept a record on, of the, the scene of the awful scene that was surrounding me on the, on the plates of Nephi. And by that, we should interpret that to mean the large plates, what, have, what has been called throughout the Book of Mormon as the large plates, which is a secular history. So he's put down the details of the wickedness of the Nephites in the large plates. But on these small plates, um, and remember, uh, Nephi started this practice of keeping two records, but we only have the one. Later on, Mormon's abridgment, don't confuse that with the small record, the Mormon's abridgment was taken from the large plates. Nephi only kept his spiritual record throughout his, uh, his life, and then uh, several of his heirs for a few hundred years, they were able to make like one or two page additions, but eventually those plates filled up, those small plates of Nephi. Those small plates of Nephi were not kept throughout the entire history of the Nephites. It was Mormon basically creating another small plate style record 
that was spiritual in nature that enabled us to have the Book of Mormon as we have it now. So the first part of the Book of Mormon, uh, the whole Book of Mormon, was written mostly by Nephi. But then uh, starting at the words of Mormon, it was written by Mormon, it was abridged by Mormon in the same style. It was like a small plate record. And so here's Mormon referring to those two types of records. He's saying, in the plates of Nephi, I make a complete record, just like Nephi used to tell us, you know, in my other plates, I have a more complete record. But here, I'm not going to write those things because they're not inspiring. They're downright discouraging. And I'm not about to write about all these uh, wickednesses. Now, he does write a letter to Moroni. We'll talk about that in a minute. It, we have it as Moroni chapter 9. And Moroni, <laughs> unfortunately for Mormon's uh, intentions, Moroni does include an account of some of the the deeper wickedness of the Nephites. And when we talk about that chapter, we'll, we'll discuss exactly what that meant. We'll say a little bit more about it today. So uh, at the end of chapter two, we have this, uh, I wanna talk about why it's remarkable that there's a 10-year peace treaty between Nephites and Lamanites. First of all, Mormon had beaten them bad enough. My guess is they had some sort of fear, like we're returning to the old days where Lamanites could get no victory over the Nephites and they were always afraid of the Nephites. And so we better take some time to regroup. And our advantage as Lamanites has always been in numbers. And our numbers right now are down. We just had a huge defeat. So let's take some time, build our numbers back up. Uh, we're, we're always gonna be able to outgrow demographically the Nephites. We grow faster in population than the Nephites do. And we have dissenters that come over. Whenever anybody wants to be wicked, they come over to us. So let's let some time go by and let's keep the Nephites from pressing their advantage and ultimately defeating us. And so they agreed to a 10-year hiatus in battle. Now, uh, this is a time when if you compare, as we're gonna discover, the latter part of the Book of Mormon, the small Book of Mormon, is written by Moroni, and the latter part of the Book of Moroni is written by Mormon. And this is because when Mormon dies, his son Moroni finishes his little record, and when Moroni is about to die, he includes a bunch of earlier writings from his father. So we have almost two concurrent timelines, uh, or two separated timelines that are concurrent. So we we have three chapters in the Book of Moroni that are written by Mormon. One is this sermon about the how do we tell good from evil? You know it, and I know it as Moroni chapter seven. That's a sermon taught by Mormon. So we can look at this record of Mormon and we can guess, when did he teach that? Probably during this time, around the time of uh, this 10 year hiatus, or maybe even before. And Mormon, uh, I'm sorry, Moroni, if we do the math, Mormon was 40 years old. Moroni had just begun his ministry when his father taught this sermon. And in Jewish culture, in ancient Hebrew culture, uh, at 20 years old, a man started to come into his own. It's almost like the, the equivalent of today's 18 years old. It's when he became an adult. You don't have the full trust of everyone around you, but uh, you, you begin your, your career, you begin your life, uh, you may marry. And so it may be that Moroni was beginning his ministry at this time. And so if, if Mormon is 40 years old, Moroni is 20 years old, any time over the next 10 years would be a perfect time for Mormon to teach this sermon that was later recorded as Moroni chapter 7. Uh, secondly, it gives us the fact that this 10-year peace is respected by both sides gives us an insight into Nephite and Lamanite society. Were the Lamanites... Uh, did they have some sort of vestigial religion still? You remember at the time of the Nephite dissenters when Alma took his group of missionaries, they found them, they didn't find them in an atheistic state. They found them in an apostate state, uh, worshiping a god and from the Ramiumptum, but at least worshiping, right? And so they had some principles, even if those principles were wrong and leading them astray in most ways. Uh, it at least was an ethos. It was a religion. And it may be the case that the Lamanites had something along these lines because they've respected their treaty. And 
almost ten, almost to the day, ten years later, the the Lamanite king writes to Mormon and says, "Now we're going to come to battle again against you." And this kind of respect of the agreement that they had made is something that uh, basically it it denotes it gives us, it communicates that there was in their society a respect for the rule of law and for their word. Uh, it's quite interesting to see the way that that treaty was honored. It, it doesn't say there was a treaty, but it is, it's exactly 10 years. It leads us to believe that there's this treaty and that both sides are respecting an agreement. And we also get the sense that this is when, uh, if there's 10 years of peace, we get the sense that Mormon would have begun uh, his abridgment of the records of Nephi. Now he talks about that more as we get into chapters four, five, and six. But um, so we know that he would, he didn't finish it during this time, but he almost certainly began it. He began to write the history of the people of Nephi, and he was very learned. Mormon uh, knew so much about all of these records, as as they say, as he wrote uh, during the time when Hagoth took his, you remember that great uh, mariner among the Nephites, he took his ships and, and disappeared. And at, at that time, Mormon said that the hundredth part of the workings of the, of the actions of this people could not be written down, right? Which means that he wrote, he read a hundred times more than we will ever read from him, than he could ever fit into his record. So here's this wonderful abridgment of everything that's happened to the Nephites. And when you abridge something, you, you might cut it down by two or three or four times. And what Mormon has told us on several occasions throughout the Book of Mormon, when he says the hundredth part of the proceedings of this people cannot be written, he's abridged it a hundred times. So he has read records that you and I will never hear of. Uh, or maybe we would, but uh, that it would mean that a great revelation had taken place because those records have yet to be revealed. So let's get into chapter three, and this is the meat of our lesson for today. Uh, first of all, I want to bring something to your mind. You may remember the Sermon on the Mount. Last year, during when we studied the Old Testament, uh, we talked. We spent a long time on this, and I hope that you will. If you weren't with us then, you will remember this scripture, Matthew chapter five, verse forty-three, and this is part of Jesus's lesson where he's saying, you have heard it said by them of old time this, and then he says some uh, some concept from the law of Moses, but I say unto you this, and then he gives a higher law that sort of upgrades the law of Moses to a spiritual law, to the Christian law, and none of it abrogates the Mosaic law, but all of it improves the Mosaic law and means that people have to live internally what they've formerly only been observing externally. So in, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, the particular instance of this is that Jesus says, You have heard it said by them of old time, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And this, is, this verse has been the, uh, the focus of a lot of controversy over the years because nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, hate your enemy. So we'll talk about where that might have come from. But anyway, Jesus, this is what Jesus says. You've heard it said, hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. Uh, you know, Pray for them that hate you and do good to them that despitely, despitefully use you, etc. So, but let's go, but that's in verse 44. Let's go back to verse 43. Hate your enemy. So let's understand where that came from. First of all, it's sort of understood that a rabbinical tradition would have arisen around the the charge that is found in various places in the Old Testament to love your neighbor. And so they would have tried to understand what is your neighbor. At one point, one of them even comes to Jesus and says, well, then who is my neighbor? And the point, the point is, for most of Jewish history, for most of Israelite history, neighbor meant somebody who is also following, following the law of Moses with you. At the very least, it meant someone who, who was in your tribe, but it could have meant someone who is part of the 12 tribes of, Israel, of greater Israel. But someone outside of that was definitely not your neighbor. Someone who did not share in your traditions and in your religion was what was called in the Old Testament a foreigner. And so therefore that person might or might not be an enemy, but certainly was not a neighbor. So if that person wronged you in some way, then that person became your enemy. 
Now, there was another way that someone could become your enemy, and that was to steal from you or to kill someone close to you, to do you some sort of harm that was measured in the law of Moses and for which punishments were prescribed. So in this way, somebody could become your bitter enemy. Uh, so that's just an introduction. We're going to talk more about that in one second. But for now, let's get into chapter 3. So now Mormon is aged around 50 years old. It could be 49, 50, 51 years old. And he looks around him and he sees that the Nephites have sworn to take vengeance on the Lamanites. And they have sworn by everything you know on earth. You remember another part of the Sermon on the Mount and then again the Sermon at the Temple was, uh, you, have said it, you have heard it said by them of olden time, Perform to the Lord all of your oaths. Do not forswear yourself. Make sure that if you swear something, that you keep your oath. But I say, and this is Jesus talking, but I say, swear not at all, neither by heaven, because it's where God lives, or by earth, because it's his footstool. You can't, by talking, make one hair of your head change color, and so therefore you shouldn't swear. But just say yes, yes, or no, no. Because you don't need to swear, don't, you don't get to lie just because you're not swearing. So don't give yourself this excuse anymore that you can lie when you're not swearing. Just tell the truth all the time. So that was kind of Jesus' lesson. But he had given a very firm commandment, don't swear, especially by these particular things, the heavens and the earth. And this is what the Nephites were swearing by. We swear that we will avenge ourselves against our enemies because they have wronged us. And when Mormon saw them doing that, in direct contravention of the sermon at the temple, then he utterly refused from that moment on to lead them to, to, in battle because they had sworn, not only were they going to do something wicked, but they had sworn this, the act of taking upon them the obligation to do that wicked thing was itself a wicked act in, in swearing and making this covenant. They made an evil covenant, in other words. And Mormon was not willing to be a part of that. So that's the situation we're in. Now, in Mormon, earlier in Mormon chapter 2, uh, verse 14, he, he looks around him and he sees that the Nephites are not repenting. He describes them as not having a broken heart and a contrite spirit. But when Jesus spoke to the Nephites in 3 Nephi chapter 9, right, during this destruction, he says, your blood sacrifices are no good anymore. What I desire from you is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That is your sacrifice now. So Jesus is turning a page in what you might call Israelite history. And when I say Israelite history, I mean the entire house of Israel, broad Israelite history, of which the Nephites would have seen themselves as a continuation. So the Nephites considered themselves to be the house of Israel. And Jesus is turning a page and he's saying, no more this this shedding of blood for sacrifice, that was a type of things which were to come, but which have now come, which are now in the past, and therefore there is no more blood sacrifice. I will no longer accept your blood sacrifice. What I will accept, and the only thing I will accept, is a broken heart and a contrite spirit. So bring me that sacrifice. And explicitly in Mormon chapter 2, Mormon describes the Nephites as having failed to bring that sacrifice to God. Instead, what are they doing? They're, in, they're engaging in the shedding of blood continually. So the Nephites, the, the point is being made subtly, but definitely there, that the Nephites are regressing spiritually. They're, they're traveling backward hundreds, if not thousands of years to when things were quite different and God dealt with people differently because they were not yet ready to hear more difficult and more demanding truths that Jesus would bring. So here's the contrast. We have this heavenly gift that we're talking about, and we know the gifts of the Lord have been taken away. We have the sermon at the temple. We have the pronouncements of Jesus spiritually to the Nephites during the destruction, where he says, no more shedding of blood. Bring me a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Do not swear. Do not, uh, you have heard it said, do not forswear yourself, but I say, do not swear. And the Nephites are turning their backs on all of these things that they've been taught. But, now, I want to make um, a, an Old Testament 
observation for you, and I think it's going to shed a light on a lot of what's going on here in Mormon chapter 3. There is in Judaic thought and in, uh, in the Old Testament understanding the idea of a redeemer and the concept of people being redeemed, and it's not the way that we've been taught it as Latter-day Saints specifically and as Christians more generally. Because we learn the Redeemer in the context of Jesus Christ being our Redeemer, uh, we don't often go one step further and understand what it originally meant. See, what Jesus was doing was he was taking a familiar concept and what the prophet Isaiah did. Uh, he was taking a familiar concept to the ancient Israelites and saying, I am this thing for all of you. Because they all had redeemers, they all from time to time had things that needed to be redeemed. So I'm going to talk about what the earthly meaning of redeemer was uh, before we go any further. So a redeemer was a close kinsman, right? If you had a brother or if you had your closest blood relative, if you were sold into slavery, then your redeemer, what the obligation that was upon that person, your closest kinsman, was to be a, a redeemer for you to go buy you back. If you were murdered, then the obligation of your close kinsman was to see justice done. And in Old Testament times, that actually meant on many occasions, not all, but on many occasions, it meant finding your murderer and killing that person. In the uh, execution method of stoning, for example, the person who brought the charges against the accused that was the person who would first cast the stone. This is why Jesus said, incidentally, uh, I, uh, maybe you like these little digressions, but I know I do. So uh, when Jesus said to the Pharisees who'd brought her, the woman taken in adultery, he said, whoever is without sin, let you first be the one to cast a stone. In other words, if you want to be the, the avenger, if you want to be the person who is redeeming this woman's husband, then go ahead, cast the first stone, be the one to kill her, uh, figuratively speaking. And he was, I, I shouldn't say figuratively speaking, he was speaking both figuratively and literally. He was saying, if you are without sin, then you pick up a rock. And he didn't mean like, you know, throw a rock at her and hurt her. He meant pick up a stone the size of a cantaloupe or bigger, something large enough that when you throw it at her, it's going to injure her unto death. If you are without sin, then you be the one who brought the charges before the court and that person is found guilty and worthy of death, and then you are actually the executioner. Because in stoning, this method of execution of ancient Israel, that's how it was done. The accuser was the person who had to be the one to cast the first stone. And that was your job. If you were the redeemer, if you were this kinsman redeemer, then you had to go see justice done. Uh, and if you had a piece of land that, that you lost, then your kinsman redeemer had first dibs to it. They had the first right of refusal. You, we see that in the book of Ruth when Boaz wants to marry Ruth and he takes this hypothetical situation to, um, to Ruth's late husband's nearest kin and he says, well, you know, there's a plot of land and uh, I'm wondering if I should redeem it. You know, you're a nearer kinsman, but you have the right to it. And then the guy says, yeah, I want that. And he says, okay, yeah, but if you do, then you also have to redeem this this kinswoman, and you have to raise up seed unto a dead man. And, and Jews didn't generally want to do this. And so he says, no, you redeem it. You have the right to redeem it. And as I mentioned, uh, if, you're, if your brother died, leaving no seed, no heirs, then it was your job as a redeemer to redeem that, uh, that childless state and to raise children unto your brother's memory. So these are the kinds of, of things that a redeemer would do. So when, G when Isaiah called Jesus the redeemer of Israel, this, had, th this is the meaning that it had for them. And when we talk about Jesus Christ as our redeemer, so this, this now has an additional, obviously it has an additional spiritual element to it, which is that uh, further the, the Jews, when they went to the temple, they were redeemed from their sinful state by this blood sacrifice. And so when Jesus said, I am the redeemer of Israel, it, they took it to mean all of these earthly things. He's our closest kinsman. He will show up and see justice done, but also he will take upon him the sins that we normally put upon these animals and either send the scapegoat off into the wilderness or and either send the scapegoat off into the wilderness or we uh, slay the unblemished lamb at the altar 
this is Jesus now in the place of those animals. He is our Redeemer. This is what it meant when he called himself the Redeemer. So, the, the word for Redeemer now is Goel. And the word for kinsman or blood is Hadam. You remember Adam, is, it also comes from this word, right? And it, and it uh, means that it has two meanings. You can be a Redeemer, and that Redeemer can be the person who goes out to avenge the murder of a near kinsman. So if my brother has been killed, I seek the murderer. And if I catch him, then it is my job to kill him. It is my obligation. It is my duty under the law of Moses. And this is, I believe, what Jesus was referring to when he said, you have heard it said that you should love your enemy, or I'm sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. In other words, you have this duty to redeem someone and you have to hate the enemy, someone who has injured you. You have to go after them and pursue them until justice is done. This wasn't Jesus teaching this. This is the, the teaching to which Jesus was referring. You've heard it said that you have to hate your enemy. You have, to, you have to go after them. You have to be this kind of avenger. Now, interestingly, uh, in the if you want to read about this, you can go to Numbers chapter 35. But in Numbers chapter 35, the word goel, which is translated in many places throughout the Old Testament as redeemer. In this chapter, it's, it's either avenger or revenger the revenger of blood. And it talks about what happens if you've committed murder unwittingly, if you've committed manslaughter, basically. This is a great innovation in jurisprudence where the Jews were one of the first people to talk about intent. If someone meant to kill, if they had a motive to kill and they derived gain from their murder, then this person cannot be redeemed. They can't be redeemed by money. They have to be redeemed by blood. And so there needs to be a blood avenger that will follow them. And this is a goel hadam. But a blood avenger can have another meaning as well, because blood can also mean a relationship. And, it, and your blood or your kinsman can be your uh, goel or your redeemer. So there are two meanings for this Hebrew phrase, goel hadam. It can mean a blood avenger or it can mean a kinsman redeemer. Okay, I hope I've blown your mind because we're about to talk about how Mormon basically is seeing one of these and not the other. When Jesus came to the Nephites, he said to them, I now am your kinsman redeemer. You've heard it said by them of olden, olden times that you should be a blood avenger when someone is your enemy. But what I'm telling you now is I am the Lord and I am the one who is paying your price for all of your sins. If you want to be forgiven, then you have to forgive. And that means you allow other people the privilege that I am offering to you, which is instead of having a blood avenger, you all get to have the same kinsman redeemer in me, Jesus Christ, your savior. And Mormon knew all of this, right? He knew that the entire house of Israel had evolved from the age of a blood avenger to the age of a kinsman redeemer. The same this same Hebrew phrase, Goel Hadam, had taken on a totally new meaning. And because we have these heavenly gifts, because we have the gifts of God, we no longer have the right to, to hate our enemies, to seek them out, to kill them. But here's what the Nephites are doing. Here in uh, Mormon chapter 3, verse 14, they are swearing by everything they hold sacred to go and avenge themselves against their enemies. Now, this was their not only their right, but their obligation under the law of Moses. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what's wrong with that. It's not like they were doing a good thing under the law of Moses, but a bad thing under Christianity. It's that they were using the cover of false religi religiosity. They were saying, this used to be fine. You know, in our scriptures we have, it used to be fine that we would avenge ourselves on someone who has killed our close kin, and therefore we're going to do it again. But Jesus had explicitly commanded them, no, you no longer have the right to be a blood avenger. You have one redeemer, and that is me. And uh, so it was in more than one way that Mormons saw them abrogating the sermon at the temple. They were abrogating the idea that they couldn't swear because Jesus had forbidden the swearing of oaths. But they're also abrogating this idea that you, uh, when Jesus had taught love your, don't love your enemy, don't love your neighbor and hate your enemy, 
love your enemy as well. They're abrogating that one as well. And they're basically taking the entire spirit of the sermon at the temple and turning it on its head and and backing it up and undoing it. And taking, in other words, taking the entire atonement of Jesus and saying, we're setting that at naught. It is the ultimate rejection of God to take his teachings in this way and take it upon yourself to be the redeemer again, once Jesus had already promised that that was his role. So first of all, he finds no a Mormon. He finds no broken heart and contrite spirit among them. But now when he sees this, he sees the total abrogation of the sermon at the temple. Then this is when he can no longer lead the Nephites, right? They have deleted God from the world. And not only that, but they have regressed they have regressed from Christ's law to the perverted law of Moses, right? It wasn't in the law of Moses that you got to just swear eternal vengeance and then murder everyone you wanted. What the Nephites were doing was worse. Uh, Moroni chapter 9 gives you an example, and just to foreshadow it, you might remember that it describes how the Nephites would torture and uh, kill their prisoners and the terrible, terrible things that they would do, right? That's not in the law of Moses. Now, you, last week we talked about taking the name of God in vain. So, the, And the, the concept goes beyond just saying the word God when you don't mean it in a spiritual context. It goes all the way to when you say that you're acting in a spiritual way, but you're actually doing the works of the devil. If you claim to be doing the works of God while doing the works of the devil, you have committed a sin for which there is no forgiveness. And that's what the Nephites are doing. They're saying, look, we're, we are these Goel Hadam. We are these revenging, uh, the revengers of blood, the avengers of blood. We're going after vengeance as is our right. It is God's work we are doing. And instead, what they're doing is the works of the devil. There can be no forgiveness for what, they do, what they're doing. They're perverting the very idea of faith, let alone the specific instance of faith that they have. They're perverting the, the idea of believing in God. And believing in God itself is something that you can use to justify evil. And that was never God's intent. So once they did that, Mormon recognized there can be no forgiveness for them. So here in Mormon chapter 3, we have a fascinating contrast. And that is that between the two meanings of this Hebrew, this ancient Hebrew phrase, Goel Hadam. If you are your own Goel Hadam, you take it upon yourself to be a blood avenger, and you forego the privilege of having a kinsman redeemer bring you out a bondage. So that's what a redeemer, that's what a kinsman redeemer would do. They'd buy you out of slavery. They would avenge your death. They would buy the land that you had to let go that you could no longer afford to keep. They would raise up seed to you if you had if you died childless. You forego the privilege of having a kinsman redeemer when you take upon yourself the entitlement of acting as a blood avenger. And that's really the contrast between the heavenly gift of fourth Nephi and the earthly gift of the Nephites. So if, and, and I want to ask this question, the, the question at the beginning of the lesson was, what does it mean to have a heavenly gift? And I want to turn it back now and ask you the question, if we don't have the heavenly gift, what do we have instead? What is the earthly gift that we get when we refuse to accept the heavenly gift from our Father in heaven? And I'll tell you right now, it's not something that is sort of in between good and bad. There's only things that come from God and things that come from the devil. As we learn later in Moroni chapter 7, and this is one of Mormon's lessons at this time. You either accept the heavenly gift or you accept a counterfeit of it, which was composed by Satan and designed to bring you to a place where you will justify evil in the name of God. You can't have both. You can't be in between. You, uh, and and I, shouldn't, I should qualify that. Of course, there are shades of, of good and evil in everyone. But what I'm saying is your choices will tend to bring you in one direction or the other. They don't keep you neutral. There are no choices that are truly neutral. So as we make a choice to accept the heavenly gift, that choice does bring us closer to God. But if we make a choice to refuse the heavenly gift, it's not like that choice then just leaves us where we're at. That choice brings us farther away from God. It distances us. Those are the choices that we make. We, when we refuse the heavenly gift, we, re we receive this earthly gift, 
which is the equivalent of saying, I don't want a kinsman redeemer. I want to act as a blood avenger. I want to take an earthly gift and I want to take uh, a heavenly concept that had the power of exalting me and I want to put it on an earthly plane so that I get to interpret it however I want. And you can see just by just by me talking about this that this can lead you nowhere good. So in spite of how depraved and how awful the Nephites were at this time in Mormon chapter 3, there is a lot for there is a lot of profitable learning for us spiritually here because they refused the heavenly gift and they uh, they fell from having from relying on Christ and having this kinsman redeemer. And then they were left to their own devices. They were left to their own strength. And when difficulties came in the form of the Neph- of the Lamanites, then they were left to their own strength. And when they were outnumbered, that meant they were going to lose. In the past in Nephite history, being outnumbered meant that they would pray harder. And then they could be assured of victory, or, or that at least they could have a lot of confidence that God would fight their battles with them. But now... They're left to their own devices because they've decided to be their own redeemers. And there are so many instances where this applies in our lives. When do you act? And I, this is a question I hope we'll all take with us this week. When is it that you are refusing the redemption of God, refusing the redeemer of Israel, his right to stand in that role in your life, and refusing the heavenly gift, and instead you're acting as your own redeemer, your own Goel Hadam? If you take that decision throughout your life, you will reap no good thing. So when is it that you're doing that? And earlier I alluded to some of the ways, right? The heavenly gift is when we're able to leave behind these attitudes that keep us bound on earth and make us despair. And so if we act as our own redeemer, it is our choice to stay in those attitudes, to feel entitled, to feel defensive, to feel disconnected from other people, to build walls instead of bridges, to refuse to communicate in a way that would tend to promote understanding and have other people understand us, but instead a way that would promote contention and have other people uh, want to defend themselves against us. Well, that's really the point of the lesson. Moroni chapter, I'm sorry, Mormon chapter three, we read Mormon's, Mormon chapters 4, 5, and 6. And in chapter 4, uh, Mormon has now forsworn the, the command. And so he, uh, he just witnessing the, the rapid, rapid decline of the Nephites. It was perhaps during this time that he wrote chapter 9 of Moroni as a letter to his son. Uh, one of the worst, worst uh, events that you can imagine, and we'll, we'll study that in Moroni chapter 9. In chapter 5, he takes up the command again. He says, maybe I can do something to help them, but it's, it's too late. And in chapter 6 is the account of Mormon leading the Nephites on this hopeless final battle. Uh, it's arranged by, by epistle, by letter to the king of the Lamanites. And they, they arrange where they're going to meet. And the next day when Mormon wakes up from his wounds, he realizes that he's lost all 10,000 of his men. And he has sev- several and other commanders. He names many of them. But then he says there are many more. They each had 10,000 men under their command, and they're all slain. And only 24 Nephites have survived the battle. Some of them have fled. Some of them have descended to the Lamanites, but who woke up the next morning still on the battlefield, 24. And that is all that's left of this huge nation of Nephites, once faithful Nephites. We don't hear much about Mormon after that. Very soon thereafter, uh, he writes one more chapter of admonition to future people who might receive his words, and then thereafter his record is taken up by Moroni. And so kind of his final lesson, uh, as he as he talks about the future, his final lesson about his own people, in my opinion, is what we read in, in Mormon chapter 3. It is, the, it, it is him witnessing his people swear that they're going to take vengeance They're going to act as their own God, be their own redeemers, live without God in the world, take the name of God in vain, and set at naught the teachings that they learned from Jesus in the Sermon on the Temple. Now, what Mormon would have chosen for his people would be for them to respect God, would be for them to hear the voice of Jesus when he says, look, I'm saying, you've heard it said that you can hate your enemy, I'm saying you have to love your enemy. 
You've heard it said that you should keep all your oaths. I'm telling you, tell the truth even when there are when there is no oath. You've heard it said that you can uh, commit adul- that don't commit adultery. I'm saying don't even don't even engage in lust. Uh, you've heard it said that you can be angry or that you can uh, you should not kill. I'm telling you that you should not be angry, but that you should seek opportunities for forgiveness. So these are the things that Mormon was hoping that would cause the Nephites to bring them down into a place where they had a broken heart and a contrite spirit. That is the sacrifice that God will accept from us. And if we will bring it, we have this amazing, amazing claim that the God of heaven and earth will act as our kinsman redeemer. We'll see to it that our interests are fostered when we're helpless. And when we are sold into bondage, we'll come and buy our freedom. Uh, and that is the, the wonderful lesson of the Goel Hadam, the kinsman redeemer versus the avenger of blood. And I hope we will remember that we don't want to live in a world without God. We'll keep him with us and we will allow him to be our redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, the redeemer. Amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Holt. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.